Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media and virtual production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we've got our own Alan Hawks, and he's going to be walking us through the entire production pipeline when we're dealing with 3D production, um, 3D as in 3D models, um, not stereo <laughs> production. And each month he's going to be talking about a different uh, process, a different piece of that pipeline. Today he's going to be talking about the overall pipeline, so that should be a great second hour. So save your questions for that um, for the second hour. Go ahead and throw. You don't have to save them. You can go ahead and throw them into the into the. Uh, uh, into Makana. Also, if you have uh, questions for the first hour, pretty much anything around uh, digital media production, go ahead and throw it in right now for that first hour. Um, go ahead, Mitch. What do we got? Thank you, Alex. First in, John Snyder in Reno, Nevada, with a real techie question. Netflix is using magenta lighting and ML to optimize green screen technology. Discuss the benefits and negatives to this approach. Uh, go ahead, Mitch. Yeah, I looked it over. It's really interesting. What uh, the folks at Netflix are doing is they're doing green screen as normal, but what they're doing is they're lighting the foreground talent uh, with magenta light, which would be the red and blue. So the separation of those colors and the fact that you're in the in the, the wheelhouse for the uh, separation in the uh, post-process uh, means that you're going to get a cleaner plate. Uh, the only uh, caveat is that now you have to color correct the uh, the foreground to get the green back in that you took out. Um, and usually they, they're, they're, they're discussing an AI of some kind that's doing that. And I'm thinking, aren't we just a step away from just going all, all in with the AI and letting the AI separate us from any background? But this seems to be a step in that direction. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. I think the advantages are that they can just pull the raw green channel from the camera and use that, invert that, and use it as the holdback mat because it just has the pure green information since there is no green in the foreground. Um, and Chris has a picture of it up there. Uh, the disadvantages of it, the, so it gives you a cleaner mat, especially with transparency and light hair and so on because uh, uh, all colors are going to you know the sensor but you're, you're only lighting, the only reflected uh, light that is lit, only light that is red and blue is hitting the foreground. And so the colors that the, the people are wearing is reflected uh, that red and blue light. But, uh, and there's no green to reflect off of it. That lets them also, since they're correcting it back, they have to shoot a, a reference uh, with normal white light on the foreground. And they then put a color chart up and shoot a reference. And then they build a uh, custom LUT uh, for each color in the scene using AI to correct and uh, correct the color shifted you know, magenta back to full color. But that way it allows you to actually have characters wearing green in front of a green screen or different colors of green without worrying about it being transparent. The other disadvantage is you have to have lights that are RGB w because you have to switch between a normal white or tungsten or daylight illumination and red blue illumination combo so you have to be fairly agile in your lighting otherwise you have to have two sets of lights so it works with led lighting i'm not sure how well you know it's going to work otherwise it's going to drive the actors crazy because they're going to their their color vision will be screwed up uh, when they leave the set yeah go jason yeah, my immediate thought was, unlike the the extremely simple uh, setup that they show in the article, um, 
a lot, like lighting an entire foreground completely evenly cannot be easy. That, that, that's got to be a complex thing. Um, that and, yeah, I, I just, I'm, I'm looking at that deep magenta and thinking I, I would have a very hard time just keeping my, keeping my head on straight throughout the whole thing. Yeah, I don't think you need to do it evenly. I think it's just a matter of filling that light. But but the 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 real issue is is that the actor's performance matters, and when everybody looks weird, it's going to be harder for them to get into character. Um, and so it's just a it's a you know we we've done I mean I've done lots of weird things trying to get a better key. The reality is a very flat green screen gets everything. <laughs> like, like it just really does. You can get every little hair and it's way better than almost any composite that you see on most feature films. The problem is not that they're, they don't have the perfect magenta or whatever. The problem is, is the green screen is horribly lit. If you look at the behind the scenes, the green screens are horribly lit. They've got seams. They've got all kinds of other things going on. It's, it's a, you know, they're, they're so far away from a perfect solution that, that this is trying to you know, weed out 1% of the problem when 10% of the problem or 20% of the problem is still there. It's just, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's accurate. It's, it's shooting for accuracy beyond the precision, you know? And, and so, uh, so I, I think that it's, 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 it's something that makes sense in the lab and they're obviously in the lab. I would love to see a movie actually shot with this and I, and, and have them persuade a director to actually use this. So we'll see if it actually happens. Um, next question. Next question in from Douglas Carmichael. The Atomos Ninja cast seems to have taken influences from the ATEM software control app in their desktop uh, UI, UI, universal interface. How does it compare to an ATEM Mini? Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I just looked at it. I think the biggest uh, difference is this is a built-in monitor, which is kind of handy. I do like Atomos products. Um, they're obviously responding to the proliferation and um, success that uh, Blackmagic has with the ATEM. So uh, it's maybe a little bit smaller, but I don't have any practical experience to uh, share. And, and where does it, do we know how much it costs? Um, I don't know what the price is of it. It's, I didn't look, sorry. It's got one of these horrible website, web pages that looks really cool, but you can't actually get the information that you need. Like, you know, like it's, it's, it's those scrolling ones where it's got one picture after another picture and nowhere does it have an actual price. Um, so, uh, so it's, 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 um, uh, it's priceless. Go Found ahead. Found it. Courtney. 750. Okay. Got it. Go, go yeah, ahead. Okay, good. That was the question. That, yeah. That was the question I had is if they're going to compete against ATEM, they have to compete on price because ATEM, you know, an ATEM uh, mini is uh, $295. So. They're nowhere near competing with them there, but it has a built-in monitor, so I guess it has that advantage. Yeah, yeah, it, it'd be interesting. I mean, I think that I, I, I'd have to play with it to see if it distinguishes itself. Uh, right now, I don't necessarily want my monitor connected to my switcher. That's the problem is, is that they're doing something that I actually don't want to do, but I can see how some creators might think that that's better to have a monitor just plugged in, but you have now a small monitor that you, you don't have any choice of how, to, how you're going to undo it. Um, I don't, I, I want the monitor I have, the, the, the switcher I have to fit into a rack, <laughs> you know, not, not go the other direction. Uh, next question. From Craig Kadoki in Toronto, Canada. At last weekend's F1 race, Brad Pitt's movie had full access to the grid and the track, even having their own garage and being in the pre-race ceremony. Along with the awesome camera setups, talk about how this access affects the main production. It's, Super expensive to reproduce an F1 race. 
<laughs> I think that that's the issue. So it's just, you know, there's, there's, uh, you know, incredible millions and millions and millions, uh, tens of millions of dollars, the p- potentially approaching the budget of the entire uh, movie would would t- it would take to reproduce to get all those people there to get all that stuff there um, it's much easier to just shoot it you know there you know find a um, you know and so that they can um, and so I think that that's probably why they they did that they probably still paid them a lot of money to do it but I think that um, uh, it is uh, it's probably just much more cost effective to, to do it and we see this a lot there's a lot of productions where you you get um, opportunistic and you try to shoot at things. And if you're in a public location and people aren't necessary, you know, you can, you know, you, you can post things and just tell people, Hey, this is going to be on air. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah. If you go back to the, uh, the old movie Grand Prix, um, you get a lot of chances to see actual, uh, race drivers. That everybody knows, uh, in their in situ and they're not acting, they're just doing their job. So it's kind of cool to see that. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah. The hard part is that if you have to, uh, a lot of times uh, they will do stuff like shoot at a football game and they will gather background plates of the crowd and the opposing team and, you know, a lot of shots that they'll pick up. Any of the main dialogue scenes, they'll leave that for later in the green screen stage or in, in back in the same stu- uh, back in the same stadium or uh, <clears throat> F1 track uh, with the crowd gone on an off day and they'll shoot all that and then they'll composite in the backgrounds with the crowds in them. Uh, when they have to in the shots like that. So uh, the the difficulty comes in trying to match the cars in the fictional movie with the cars that appeared on that day in the track. So it's a tough job for the art department and the, uh, you know, having to dress out the prop cars to look like the real ones that appear. So it's, it's tougher for them to match that stuff if they have to interact with any of the foreground material. Good. Now, Chris? Obviously, nothing's going to happen unless it benefits both parties. But if the Brad Pitt movie, which I know nothing about, is very pro F1 racing, you know, the F1 people may look at it as, well, it'll bring even a larger audience uh, to F1. Clearly, they're going to spend a lot of money. But, um, yeah, it would be much easier to just, you know, shoot it for real than to try and fake it all. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking, how do you get verified on threads? Uh, there's, I think you can Google that. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> like, I, I, you know, like, this isn't really a graphics question, and I don't know how to do it. I, I got on, I got my name, and then I took it off my computer because I, or my, my phone because I like battery life. Um, next question. From Craig Kadoki in Toronto, Canada, using an iPhone 13 Pro as a webcam a cam on Ventura. Can you select which lens the camera uses, or is it always the wide angle? Any tips and tricks to make this even better? Webcam settings don't work with continuity camera. Any other options for fine-tuning? Go ahead, Javier. Uh, I think if you're using the continuity, like the native continuity capabilities of the of the OS, you can select the the lens you have, like the fixed lens. I don't think it's the the wide eye. I think it's the like the regular, like the one you open the one point zero, and you can only use like the desk view. That I think it's using like the wider one, like cutting it. But if you want to have control over that, you can use something like. Um, like shoot video, like uh, so. Sorry, shoot. Uh, yeah, shoot camera. Uh, that that app lets you select from different lenses. You can have like the one X, the the point five, or the three X. So 
it, it depends. If you want to do it, you have to do like a third uh, third party app. If you use like the regular app, you're not going to be able to to switch lenses. Good, Chris. Yeah, I've had a similar problem with the continuity camera that it it appears to default to using the um, uh, the the blurry background feature, uh, and I have no idea how to turn that off. It's frustrating. Yeah, I I. I don't think that I think I would use continuity camera out of convenience, but if I was actually going to use it for a show like this, I would use something like shoot or or filmic or something else. I wouldn't use um, I wouldn't use the continuity camera for for this kind of operation uh, because you just don't have it as as both Javier and Chris said, you just don't have the control that you need to make that work. And and there are plenty of other apps that do give you that control. So I think continuity camera is really nice if you don't know anything about how to do this and you just want to plug it in and it just works. That's what you know. That's that's what it's great for. If you, as soon as you want to do anything specific, like start to fiddle with lenses, you should probably just get an app. Um, next question, Mike Edwards from Brooklyn, New York, asking: Morning, everyone. What was the KVM the panel suggested before? I want to connect a PC and a Mac without using two different keyboards and mice. Thanks. Uh, go ahead, uh, Jason. I've used so many over the years. I've used StarTex. I've used I/O gears. Um, I've even used the cheap ones from Monoprice. I don't have a strong favorite if you just need a simple A-B switch. It gets a little bit more uh, important if you're, if you're going to go beyond two computers. Sorry, I hit the wrong button there. Yeah, the, um, uh, I use a P-Way. It's, uh, it's, um, I can actually pull one out because I, I poured tea on one of them and it died. So it doesn't handle tea well. Um, so this is the one that I, but this is, so this is the stunt one now. Um, anyway, there's a couple things about this P-Way. Uh, and it's, it's it's listed as something else on, on Amazon of all things, but it says P-Way on the top. It's a 4K HDMI USB KVM. I don't use the HDMIs at all, but I got 4K just in case I decide I want to eventually. Here's the thing that I like about it is that it's small, but it, most importantly, buttons are on the front, so I can push it on the front. If they're on the top or somewhere else, it, you can't stack anything on them. Um, the interface for the keyboard and mouse are on the front. Now, again, I want to be able to just plug things into it and make it work. Everything else is on the back. And I'm pointing these out because a lot of these don't have this. <laughs> so so, the, um, so the, the, these are all on the back and it's square. I mean, they have all kinds of funky shapes for these. And so this one does four and I use all four. And it's, uh, look, it's 60 bucks. I don't know if it's the best one, but it's the one that I've been using for years. I mean, this one until I poured tea on it. And then I got another one that looks slightly different, but it's almost identical to this. So, um, so anyway, I, I think it's the best one I've used. Um, I don't use these a lot. And again, I don't use the monitor part. Um, I have so many other things to route monitors. I just needed to get the keyboard and it does that great. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, the KVM or KV, KV switch that I use it, it's an interesting form factor in that it's a puck that has a, a spider that you plug in all your uh, into all your computers, and then there's a remote push button that's right next to my keyboard, and it's just this blap 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 blap. It sounds just like that blap blap, and it rotates through the four computers. Which would so drive I me like, crazy. What's that? That would drive me crazy. The noise or the, the rotation? No, lack of precision. <laughs> that I have to go through every monitor to get to the one that I want. Yeah, but it's it's a simple form factor, and I don't have to have it. I, I got to say, it kind of works. Okay. And mm -hmm. I can just step through. And then what I did, <laughs> it's ridiculous, but I took the, the thing that has the spider on it, has indicator lights, so I mounted it in a small rig uh, mounty thing, and I put it right underneath my camera lens. 
so I could see which computer is lit up. <laughs> that's that's the geekiest uh, KBM ever. Uh, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, and here's for something completely different. I have an ancient black magic box behind me. It's a multi-switch, and you put a card in it for each type of computer that it's uh, going to be switching. So you can mix uh, Solaris, Mac, PC, whatever. And it uh, negotiates the communication protocols between it. It's a keyboard shortcut, which I like. That's cool. Uh, next question. From Nicole Kolkar from New Jersey. Sorry about that. When doing real-time compositing with Ultimat HD, Unreal Engine with a tracked camera, how can I have a moving garbage mat piped into the black magic that crops out the area around the green screen, which doesn't fill up the entire frame? Good, Courtney. That's kind of tricky. You know, we did something like this on the movie uh, Multiplicity, and it was all done with motion control cameras and articulated splits. So that would be moving as the camera moves so that we could do split screens with Michael Keaton playing two different actors. And depending upon where the camera was, the split had to move. Uh, and we had an onset uh, device that let us in real time see the playback of the split performance with the live performance. And it was very tricky. And back then there was no camera, there was no, you know, real-time camera tracking. So it was all done with uh, SMPTE driven time, time code driven motion control. And the thing, the problem you're going to run into here is even if you have uh, camera tracking, if you have a small green screen, uh, which means you have to have a garbage mat to fill up the rest of the frame, if the camera moves or the actor moves in relationship to the camera, the parallax is going to change and the the actor could walk out from between the green screen and the background. So, or the camera could move when the parallax changes, it could position the person off. You'd shoot off the green screen uh, without a means of replacing it with the foreground action. So I think the easier way would just be to, you know, bite the bullet and get a bigger green screen. Yeah. The, there's a couple of different ways probably to, to a, a, given that you're already using Unreal Engine, you're already tracking it in real time. Uh, you could you could actually take just cards. Um, so you could take you could, you could create another Unreal camera and just create cards. And those cards could either be green that matches the green that's behind them or or just white and use it to generate an alpha channel. But that would then, it would then track with it. I mean, because it's going to be as good as the track that you already have. <laughs> and so you could place those over top of the, you know, a bounding around that. Um, so that would be, you would have your main Unreal camera that is what you're shooting. Um, and then you would have a uh, another camera that you just add into the scene um, that has, uh, that can be shooting any direction and just put the, and you just put, you just have to match, you apply the tracking to both of them. It'd probably take a little bit of setup, but it, it would definitely give you either pure green or an alpha channel uh, around the area that you had there. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, Nikhil, I would try to talk you out of doing this in real time, and this is a real reason you got to do it. Uh, in post, you got a lot more options, and it's a lot easier to track that uh, garbage mat, uh, it, whether you're using Mocha or some kind of tracking uh, software. I'm assuming because he's using Unreal and everything else and Ultimate that he needs to do it in real time. He's probably a digital set. And so if, if that's the case, uh, then, then I think that you'd be able to build that mat again with that, with that process. Um, next question. Next question from Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina. If I'm looking for a few mini PCs, should I lean towards new B-Links or Melees by Courtney or refurbished HP Elite desk, desktops? There are good options for both in the sub-$300 range. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. 
Um, I'm uh, I'm a fan of staying cool. Uh, the the idea of the small guy. I think the smaller they are, the hotter they get. Uh, if you have something a little bit bigger, uh, I'm a fan of HP. So I would lean that direction. There you go, Courtney. Yeah, it depends on whether you need fanless or not. Because if you're in a situation where you got to have an open microphone nearby, you know you you want to have fanless. These uh, the uh, design of the melees uh, are designed with this uh, ribbed. Ribbed outline, uh, ribbed cases that are made of a composite plastic and carbon. I think that radiate heat. It's it's the heat radiator, so they do get warm. So you don't want to, you know, be having this on your lap. But they work quite well uh, for that kind of stuff. B Link, you can get in a more, you know, uh, heftier processors. They all do have fans in them, though. Now these days, so you have to take that into consideration. But you can get a Ryzen nine. Uh, with a B-Link that is quite capable uh, with uh, doing graphics and uh, with uh, a large number of cores that satisfy the uh, the people at Zoom who tend to discriminate against us for quad-core machines. <laughs> uh, uh, so, But any of those smaller PCs that run Windows Pro uh, should work for you as long as you're not having to do 1080p output to Zoom. They all handle 4K output on all the uh, on all the HDMI outputs, 4K 4K 60. Uh, but uh, outputting to Zoom, they still discriminate if you don't have more than four cores. Yeah, and and I think those are great PCs. Uh, there are a lot of small form factor that I'm starting to pay a lot more attention to. One is the new Turing RK1. So the Turing RK1 has uh, it's basically a Jetson um, pin layout, and it's really powerful. <laughs> so, so take a look at the specs on the RK1. Um, also, um, the there is a LinkPi ENC, uh, ENC5 version 2 video encoder, 5 4K30 HDMI inputs <laughs> that it will encode all of them at the same time. Um, and that, but I think that that one, and if you look at the place to find that is cnx-software.com. Um, so I've been doing some research on some of these smaller form factors that are, you know, th- sub $300. So if you need a PC, you need a PC. But some of these other ones, um, you know, are raw boards that you might might be interested in as you, as you go forward. Uh, next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Wow. OpenAI releases Code Interpreter, a chat GPT plugin developed in-house to all plus subscribers, helping them analyze data, create charts, edit files. Please comment. Go ahead, John. Code Interpreter, which is a plugin for GPT-4+, Plus, if you're a paying member, is basically a Python playground inside of GPT. It's a step in the right direction. Real programmers are calling this a toy, but it does do some cool stuff. Uh, when we get when we can do what we can do with Jarvis, I'll be very excited. And don't real programmers call everything a toy? Oh, that's just a toy. You're not you're not writing in machine language. You know, like it's <laughs> so. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's fun. We'll see how it goes. Um, a quick reminder that of course you can ask questions anytime during the during the first hour or second hour. So go ahead and throw your questions in. We've got a great panel here. Um, today is the graphics day. So if you've got questions around computer graphics, whether it's 3D or 2D or stereo or all those things, we've got some folks here that can answer those questions. So uh, definitely throw those in. Um, and we'll be talking about graphics, of course, in the second hour as Alan uh, is going to walk us through the overall CG pipeline. So um, so if you've got questions about that, go ahead and throw them in. And remember to vote on the questions so we know what order you'd like us to ask them in. Uh, next question. 
And it's here from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. Can you plug a UPS into another UPS to lengthen the time the first one supplies power once the power goes out? I'll go, Jason. I'm really glad you asked this. Um, this is a really bad idea because when, when everything loses AC at the same time, they're going to try to start loading off of each other and, and you're just going to have a big mess. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, it's not a good idea to do that. They're not intended for that use. In fact, strip uh, outlets should not be daisy-chained either. It's just a bad idea technically and electrically. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, because most of these have uh, surge suppressors in them, which are metal oxide varistors that are designed not to be put in parallel against other metal oxide varistors. So it's a bad idea to daisy chain them. Better idea is if you have two UPSs, take the battery out of the second one and parallel connect it to the first one, and then you'll get twice the runtime off the uh, first UPS if that's what you're intending to do. And that'd be the safest way to do it. Go ahead, Chris. Roscoe, you're missing a real great opportunity here. What you want to do is take the out the, the cable from uh, number A, uh, UPS A, plug it into B, take B, plug it into A. Now you have perpetual power. You're good to go for the rest of eternity. <laughs> Nothing will go wrong at all. Yeah, the... Um, uh, one of the things that we do a lot of is split things up. So, uh, you know, I, it's hard. At some point, you can't split it up anymore. But the real way to extend the life, of course, is to just, to just get more UPSs. And don't put them in parallel, but run, I mean, don't put them in series, but in parallel, as Courtney said, and just keep on splitting things out. So, for instance, my lights sit on a different UPS than my computers, which is sit on a different UPS than my router. And so they all have their own um, UPSs. Uh, the router will last six hours <laughs> you know, if, if we lose power. Um, you know, you lose it often enough here in California, you start getting, um, get, get, you start getting good at this. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, for the record, uh, Chris uh, Fenwick does not necessarily represent the opinions of office hours and its <laughs> subsidiaries. I still think we should do it and just take a video and see what happens. Uh, next question. Mike Edwards from Brooklyn, New York. Panel, would you like to recommend purchasing two different USB hubs and docks for two different computers or attempt to split the USB-C into both computers? Thanks. Uh, I don't think you can do that. I don't think you, can, you can't really split that. you got to pick one. <laughs> so I would get two different USB docks. And again, I would really recommend OWC on the, in this area. I bought a lot of different docks, and I haven't really been happy with any of the other ones. No, go ahead, Jason. Yeah, this just in, don't ever do that. <laughs> yeah, so, and and the uh, I will say that I got a smaller dock from Uni, U, or Uni, or Uni, or whatever, and it's it's working pretty well. It's interesting, the Ethernet didn't work on the little, the little splitter dock that I got. The Ethernet didn't work, but it works on the large one. It's a little box with a little short cable. I can't think of the name of it, but it's, so that's, as a, as a really inexpensive little dock, um, it's, it's worked okay. Next question. Roscoe Jones from Madison, Indiana is back. Any warnings to using a UPS as a field battery when no power is available? Needing to use a T-Mobile 5G modem to upload a stream for an hour. I've got two APC 1500s, batteries, and units. Go ahead, Jason. In theory, that could work. Uh, there's an issue, though. Usually when they lose AC power, you'll start to hear a hum, and a lot of them have a tone to warn you that the power is out. So be careful. And go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, what I would do it, uh, you like Jason said, it, it could work, but the, most of the uh, UPSs are only designed to work about uh, have about twenty to twenty minutes, ten to twenty to thirty minutes at most to supply power to whatever's hooked up to them to allow you to shut it down gracefully. Uh, a, 
a better choice would be just to buy a, a high quality sine wave inverter and get a big hunkin battery and just use that and uh, with that kind of a setup, you can turn it on and operate for six, you know, four or five hours, depending upon the size of your battery and the power delivery of your inverter. That's what we used on the Cinegear to supply us with some AC power on the cart all day long. So uh, it does work. Good, Chris. Yeah, but Alex, you just mentioned that your your router is set up to run for six hours on the U, UPC UPS, yeah, right? It's just draw. You know, it's just, it's just how much draw. I mean, 20 minutes is if it's at full. 15 to 20 minutes is at, if it's at full load. The 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 load on a 5G modem is almost, I mean, I, I don't know what 5G modem you're using, but it would be almost zero. Like, it's it's really not taking up very much power at all. Um, if it's a, the question really is, is if, if the T-Mobile, if you're, um, uh, if that 5G modem requires AC, I don't know if it does, but if it requires AC, then you might need something to, to convert that. But it probably is a USB-C or USB, uh, micro USB connection, if it's the ones that I'm used to um, using, or a barrel, like the little barrel. So you've got a wall wart um, that's going to be a um, AC to 12 volt or probably 5 volt, um, goes into the wall wart. Um, the, th the interesting thing is, is, I don't think if I have one sitting here, but um, uh, small rig makes a what's called the 99 battery. And it's got a V-mount um, and it's a little battery. It's got a little display on the front. And it's got USB D-tap and barrel connectors in the side of it. <laughs> you can just, uh, that thing will probably run that modem for a day. You know, like it's it's literally this big. Now, if you really want to use the UPSs that you have, uh, it will make that noise. The fifteen the 1500s, the APC 1500s will make that noise. You can't open the, the 1500s up and take the noise out. We've done that because we've definitely used them the way uh, we had a, um, a shot where we needed to have two LED, LEDs. And they were part of a set that we rolled in and out um, uh, of, a, of the set. And we, we had a UPS for each one of these little sets. There were three of them. And we ran the LED lights and everything else, all the little LEDs that were in the set from one of these UPS 1500s. Now, it only needed to run for 10 minutes, but it was a lot more power. It was a lot more power draw than, than what you're having there. But we had to surgically remove the buzzers because, it was, of course, it was on set and we didn't want to make any I was going to say, when Alex says, take the noise out, to be clear, he's not actually grabbing noise. He's removing <laughs> the device that makes noise. So. It, it's yes. a bit of a euphemism he was working like on. Take the, the noise out just means we disable just took, it. We, we have a magician that can just take the noise out. They just go like this. And it's, 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 I can't get it to work, but it, this is the motion that they do. And, it's, and then it doesn't make any noise. Um, yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, you're kind of working backwards here. If, you, if your 5G modem is a thing that you need to keep running, look at it's probably running on dc so it probably has a wall wart that delivers dc to the modem find out what the voltage is for that modem and just get a battery uh that uh, can go to that and there's these for like eight bucks if you're a little bit you know ingenious here you can buy these boost or buck converters they'll take uh three and a half to 28 volts in and and can adjust up or down to any voltage out up to three amps uh so uh, just get one of those Take the output of your 12-volt battery or 9-volt battery or whatever battery you end up with, adjust the output to the voltage that the modem requires, and you could run, you know, all day long on that battery probably with that little DC-to-DC DC converter on there, and you wouldn't go through the trouble of having to convert, you know, DC to AC in an inverter or in a UPS, and then that AC back to DC to run the modem. It's very inefficient all doing it that way. Just run it off a battery. 
All I know is that I was today years old when I knew that there was a DC to DC variable converter. <laughs> That's really cool. Go ahead, John. Yeah, absolutely tangential what Cordy just said. There's a, there's a bunch of videos of, of guys running their entire streaming rigs on these like Geniverse batteries that, Chris, don't you have one of those batteries? They're running all day long on on these little Geniverse battery systems. And, and yeah. DC to DC is the way to go, Like just like Cordy said. Hey, good, Chris. If you want to learn about battery technology, uh, definitely um, talk to like Jack and Keenan in After Hours. Uh, the, those guys are mad scientists. I got to say, I want to say to Courtney, Courtney, I really appreciate the way your mind works. And I will say that there are two different ways of solving problems. There is the Lego method, and then there is the Heathkit method. And Courtney is a master of the Heathkit method. Courtney, you do things routinely that are two to three levels above where my mind works. I I am much more like the Lego method, buy this thing, buy this thing, plug this thing in. But you're like, you're like mad scientist. And I really appreciate that. I can never solve the problems that you solve unless I have you to ask how to help. Anyway, I appreciate the way your mind works. Next question. From Nikhil Kamkovar from New Jersey. From a filmmaking point of view, I'm invested in Canon EF glass, and I'm wondering if moving to RF is the way to go. I know there are adapters available. Also, in terms of camera systems, Sony or Canon is a religious war, but thoughts on pros and cons of each. Go ahead, Mitchell. Um, yeah, you're right. There are plenty of adapters. Um, Megabones is probably the best one if you want to go between a Canon you, and a Sony. Met, Metabones? Metabones. Yeah. yeah, the little uh, circular mega, thing there. Megabones. <laughs> so, Megabones, so Meta, Mega, yeah, exactly. whatever, one of those little guys. And uh, you stick it on there. Uh, here's the thing with the Sony. I'm, I'm definitely a Sony fanboy, as you all well know. Um, the thing with Sony is they communicate so well with their E-mount uh, lenses, uh, especially if you're doing that great autofocus. You need a, a high-speed lens that talks Sony uh, to do that. Other ones can do it, but just not quite as well. So uh, that's my uh, pitch for the Sony side of things. And then as far as your investment, you know, with Canon, they're pretty darn good. Go ahead, uh, Chris. Yeah, what do they say? Uh, you you date your camera and you marry your your lenses. So um, the thing about the thing about getting heavily into a lens is you're going to save a ton of money money if you uh, if you stick stick to that. I, there are uh, multiple stories in social media past, which I won't go into. A very prominent photographer, people throwing their hands up and saying, "Oh, I hate Canon now. I'm moving everything to Nikon." And then two years later, uh, I'm going back to Canon, and like literally selling all their glass and stuff. And it's just, I, I, I definitely subscribe to you know, pick one and go with it. And you know, maybe you've made a mistake, but you know, your career won't last forever. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I mean the the R five is definitely um, it, the RF in general is a is a superior system to the Canon EFs, uh, so that is a, it is an upgrade. The pr real problem is is that the RF it's, Canon is tired of other people making lenses without paying them for them. So what Canon did is they they've encoded their system so that you have to license the RF system from them as opposed to the EF, so that so that you you need to pay them for every lens you sell, um, and so you can tell that they're 
they're desperate to make sure make sure they keep on making money. Um, and because, you know, they were looking at Tamron and, and um, you know, all the other camera manufacturers that were able to um, use the RF uh, system. So, so that's been the, that's, that's why the RFs are a little bit controversial in that sense. The, um, I don't know, the, the, I don't know if the RF, I don't think the Metabones, I don't know if it can manage the communication between the camera and the lens. It can, I think it can adapt it, but I think you're, you need to have an all manual lens to do that. Um, I will say I, I find that the Sony, I, I agree with Mitch that the Sony um, uh, uh, autofocus is superior. Uh, I am looking at getting an R5 though, uh, a Canon R5, and that's specifically because there is an R5 lens that I'm interested in. It's the dual 180 lens. So as we get ready for production for um, uh, for the Vision, uh, the, the dual 180 lens is interesting to me. <laughs> so so anyway, so we're uh, so that and it's the only one. Now some people are putting those those dual one eighties on the R five and some people are putting them on the Raptor. Um, and so um, the red Raptor and so um, so I'm looking at kind of experimenting in those areas. Go Jason. Um yeah Metabones has repeatedly annoyed me and it and here's why. They're ninety three percent perfect, and that is so infuriating. And you mess with the firmware, and you clean it, and you're like, "Oh, okay, got to get the contacts right." And it's still, and then it's like ninety three and a half, and you've just wasted like six hours. That's what drives me crazy about Metabones. Oh, and they're seven hundred bucks. Next question. Next one in from Robert Sababody from Poland. I'm using Zoom ISO, the latest beta, and recently my internet dropped during an event, and the Zoom ISO Mac Mini lost connection with Zoom. Anyone have any idea how to make Zoom ISO reestablish the connection with the Zoom meeting short of rebooting? Um, well, you might have to restart Zoom ISO. I don't know if you're trying to not restart Zoom ISO or not restart the whole computer. I don't know why you would need to uh, restart the whole computer. And we've lost it. It's definitely worth putting a ticket in or trying to um, test that because I have not had that problem specifically. Go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, if you've lost connection with Zoom, just, you know, a Mac mini is going to reboot pretty quick. I would just reboot it in a panic. Obviously, you want to get to a state where you don't have these kind of problems. And I would agree with Alex, you know, definitely let Zoom know that they've been super responsive to to our input. Yeah. And and um, yeah, if, if it's actually a bug, they'll fix it, I'm sure, within the next um, link, you know, the next, if, if, if you file a ticket, the most important thing to do is file a ticket, um, and, uh, to make sure that they know, but it's, it, you know, that it's probably one of the most responsive teams that we've wor ever worked with. <laughs> you know, so, so I think that you, you can probably file a ticket there and, and they'll take a look at it. The other thing you can do is remember that multiple zoom ISOs can multiple computers can go into the same meeting and pull out those ISOs. So if this, if you're really concerned about this problem, the other option is you could theoretically have two Mac Minis that were each on each in the meeting and each grabbing all the same feeds and on two different internet connections. I mean, if you start thinking about redundant builds for high-profile events, um, you could do that, and then you could you have a button that just changes the routing. That if if something goes down, you'd be able to move over to the other one. So that might be another option. In the meantime, and generally having a primary and backup is always a good idea as if you're working in high-profile events. Uh, next question. Here's Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas, with a question. For anyone using DaVinci Resolve, are you finding better control of color correction and grading when you opt not to use DaVinci Color Managed Project settings? Uh I almost always use DaVinci Color Managed Project Settings, <laughs> so I don't really have a, I, I'm not, 
I'm not sure what it would be like to not do that. <laughs> so, so, so anyway, if, if, if you're asking what I think you're asking, uh, so I, it may be, but I, I, I have What does that mean, Alex? There's a, there's a bunch of different, um, in, inside a resolve, you, you have, uh, project setups and you can decide how it's going to be, man- how the color is going to be managed. And there's a lot of set, I mean, it's the one really tricky part of resolve, um, in final cut, you just kind of open it up and you throw it in there and it all starts to work. Um, which is why I, you know, when I'm doing something quick, I don't go into resolve, but in resolve, you can start setting up, okay, this is what the project is going to be. This is how we're going to manage that color. Um, and that's all in the project settings or in the, in the, in the, um, and so inside of there, you can set up, these are the split, this is the display. This is the LUT between these things. This is how this is all set up. When you're working on a technical event or technical edit that has that where color, you know, is going to be managed, uh, it's why you use Resolve instead of Final Cut. I mean, like it's, you know, like you just turn it, you go like, okay, we're going to use this because, and I don't, some people will edit all in, in Final Cut and then send it to Resolve to be, you know, to have the color done. Sometimes I think that might be faster <laughs> so, so because the edit, the edit is so much faster in Final Cut. But Final Cut's uh, color management is woefully behind uh, Resolve's. Um, and so especially and also it's sound management and so on and so forth. And so so it's really uh, it's really difficult if you're doing, for instance, HDR work or really, really high quality stuff. Sometimes it's just easier to build it. But um, in general, you really have to kind of know what you're doing. Resolve is very hard to just open up and start editing. You know, like that's not that's not it's. It's it's a grown up app <laughs> that requires some some uh, you know requires some knowledge before you turn it on. Um, next question. Next one in from Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois. Please explain a bit about the tech behind Bluetooth. Which radio band is used? One way transmission or some form of duplex? Do you foresee a time when this tech will find stable use in production? Go, Jason. Well, it does have a stable use in production, um, at least unstable productions. Uh, Bluetooth is uh, Bluetooth is a mishmash of um, you know the host stack and the controller stack, and the 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 handshake between the two is extremely complicated and may or may not work. And if you've ever bought uh, really cheap earbuds, you've you've heard the oddities that happen when you know when Bluetooth switches protocols midstream. Um, it's, it's a huge mishmash and it's, it's not an easy thing to explain in 30 seconds. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah. If you do want to take a really deep dive and go to bluetooth.com specifications, they've got a great, uh, website there and just look at all these documentations. Bluetooth has been a moving target for more than, more than a decade now. And there's all these different protocols that were adopted and then deprecated and adopted and deprecated. And there is a white paper on each one of them. And there are hundreds and hundreds of them. So you can't exactly explain it. It's generally in the 2.4 gigahertz range, but I think some Bluetooth LE may be up in five gigahertz on licensed range. Usually those are the two ranges that they operate in because they don't interfere with licensed uh, RF transmission. Go ahead, Chris. I used to work with a producer who gave us a courtesy call once and said, hey, by the way, you're not going to be hearing from me anymore. I just started at a new company, I'm like employee number four or five or something like that. And it, it's going to be really big. You haven't heard of it yet. Well, what is it? Oh, it's called Bluetooth. You'll be hearing about it. Never heard from her again. <laughs> and we would like to uh, take this moment to thank Hedy Lamar for Bluetooth and uh, Wi-Fi and cellular. <laughs> All right, next question. 
That's right. Skip, uh, was that frequency hopping? Good yep. stuff. Nikhil Kamkokar in New Jersey. There's a lot of chatter, it seems, about in-camera video effects as a hot job market. Thoughts? And if you were to focus on working in ICV effects, what would be the future-proofed skill set to focus on giving AI green screen versus LED, et cetera? You know, I think that um, in-camera visual effects is going to be a big deal. Now, this is what you're seeing in Mandalorian. This is what you're seeing in a lot of other things where you're trying to get everything done in the camera in real time. I think that I don't know exactly what skills. Uh, a lot of times, the you know, it's it's hard to say these are the skills for this because a lot of times you don't know until you're five years into it what what the actual skills are going to be. I think that tracking is important. Unreal Engine is important. Um, people will ask, well, should it be Unreal or Unity? And it probably should be Unreal because uh, Unreal, uh, Epic spent a lot of time and effort. Uh, if you're developing for the Apple Vision, then Unity makes more sense because uh, Apple and Epic don't get along very well. Uh, but and they and so that's why you're seeing a lot of Unity support on the Apple platform. Uh, but if you're looking at uh, in-camera vi- visual effects uh, versions of Unreal, uh, whether it's Unreal itself or not, uh, are really really kind of own that because they built a lot of broadcast uh, syncing tools into it. Um, and so it's probably so un- understanding Unreal, understanding tracking. Um, finding a place to, to to work in those areas, I think, are important. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I guess for the area, there's two areas. There's uh, the, the virtual set soundstage, which uses the LED walls, and then what you're talking about, green screen. Uh, they do a lot of uh, pre-visualization on set where they'll have temps of the 3D backgrounds that they're going to be working on and laying in later and compositing those with a temp composite on set so that the camera operators and the director can see what the eventual composite is going to be if they're shooting on a green screen stage. So those kind of... Uh, those kind of tools have been around for a long time. Uh, the uh, LED walls are just getting to the point with high enough resolution to use in-camera visual effects. Uh, the, if you're shooting a green screen, it's probably not an in-camera visual effects except for previs, uh, and so it's not permanent because uh, the the later high-quality compositing will be done later when the graphics are all done and fine-tuned. The problem with uh, doing this, working this way of doing in-camera visual effects with an LED wall is you've got to have all your ducks in a row ahead of time. You've got to have all your backgrounds uh, laid out, generated, designed, and lit. And, uh, you know, before you go onto the soundstage, because that soundstage is very uh, expensive to operate uh, with all that equipment and uh, and the main actors in there. So you got to make sure all the graphics are lined up, ready to go, and... and uh, you know, you, you don't want to make any decisions that would uh, cause you to have to, you know, redesign the background other than moving stuff around uh, on the set because it can get very expensive. So those are good. considerations. Good, Mitchell. Yeah, a good uh, example of in-camera video effects. Uh, the recently released Oppenheimer film uh, that Chris Nolan, the director, used almost all exclusively in-camera effects on it. So kind of neat to see something that potentially uh, effects uh, crazy and heavy uh, being done with the camera, and uh, it still doesn't interfere with the story. By the way, that I um, uh, I watched Mission Impossible. I'm trying to go through all the Mission Impossibles over the next um, week so that I can go see Mission Impossible next week before it's before it uh, goes out of the out of the IMAX theaters. And um, the the funny thing is, is, I didn't realize there's kind of a joke on Tom Cruise that's hidden in the in the behind the scenes. Um, so. There's a, there's a shot of him on the train 
um, and uh, the, of him on the train, and that was all shot in front of blue screen. I mean, it was. I mean, I saw, I saw plates, <laughs> like you know. So so it's 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 all shot in front of blue screen, and the way they cut it together, and I think that someone at ILM must have cut it together. So you see Joe Laterry and you see John Knoll talking about it, and they've got things set up. There's a longer cut of that that I've seen, and I thought that that's what I was going to see when I opened up the DVD, but it, they cut out the shots of the miniatures of the train, and they cut out the shots of the blue sc- of him on the blue screen, because it was a really good, every time I see it at that time in the early 90s, it was a really good comp. You know, like it was, I, I was always impressed with how the comp, but there's a shot of Tom Cruise saying, you know, when the train was at speed, you really have to hang on to the train, and the way that they cut it, it was there was obviously a joke there of him talking about it and then them showing the visual effects. And then eventually somebody figured out that it was in the, in the extras and they took it out. <laughs> they, 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 they cut it a little shorter so that you never see Tom Cruise uh, with a big fan on a, on a still train in front of a green screen uh, or a or blue screen. And it was just a, but I, I realized that I didn't realize it until last night that the editor, which I think was probably from ILM putting these things together was, kind of telling the joke on Tom Cruise when he was younger, uh, you know, of him talking about the physical effects. So when we say, the reason I say this is that when people say that they did a lot of visual effects on this and it's all in camera, we should always take that um, with a grain of salt. You know, it's, there's an awful lot of visual effects that get done um, outside of that. And um, most of these folks that say it's all done in cameras are full of something that I can't talk about on the show. Um, Anyway, go ahead, Mitchell. I was just going to say, uh, you may think you're cool, but you're not as cool as Chuck Norris standing on the two wings of the two Air Force jets uh, yeah, while go. he's calmly traveling somewhere. Exactly. Now, next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What AI tools are most accessible? Midjourney <laughs> and ChatGPT. Those are the, I think those are the, probably the two that are the most accessible. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, the Atomos Zeto Connect can convert a USB webcam into HDMI. If you wanted a high-quality monitor top camera as part of a larger system, would an Atomos unit between the webcam and the switcher be the best, or would there be a monitor top camera with HDMI out? Yeah, I, what I don't know about this Connect, it, it looks interesting. It's actually got a screen on it, so you can see the webcam there. Um, what, I, what I'm not clear about is whether it's going to pass your control information. If it's not passing the control information to the camera, it's useless, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, as a webcam, um, you know, as a webcam converter. So the question really with this that we would have to test is, is it able to pass that data? And maybe I'll buy one from Amazon, see how it works, and see if it's worth keeping or not. <laughs> so we'll see, we'll see what we can do there. Uh, next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Would you pay $40 a month for these AI services? OpenAI's ChatGPT, Rewind AI, MidJourney, Superhuman, total $40. Go ahead, Javier. I already pay for OpenAI and MidJourney. I I don't use email that much, but my wife does, so she pays for Superhuman. So I'm going to take a look at Rewind because I think it's three out of four, so maybe it's four out of four. And what's what's, uh, Superhuman? Superhuman is like an email um, AI. Well, it's it launched like last year. It, it wasn't that AI centric at first, but it was like a, a way to you can quickly uh, like organize and, and go through your email. And like it has all of these tools, like it like uh, prompts you like uh, this conversation is about this. So you can categorize like that. It's like a lot of this uh, like Spark and all the email clients that try to do like help you with managing. But I think this one really, really does it. Go ahead, Mitchell. No. <laughs> Go ahead, uh, Jason. Rewind AI will never be on one of my machines. 
What is Rewind AI? Uh, that's the thing, remember, that's constantly recording your screen so you can go back in time and see what you've done. Uh, yeah, I, I can't imagine anything that would go wrong there. Uh, Javier? Okay, so then it's three out of four. I won't go near Rewind. I have an idea what was it. Now that Jason told me, I'm not trying that. <laughs> Next question. Next one in for Douglas Carmichael. Would there be any server class equivalent with out-of-band management of the B-Link products? I'd be interested in one for an apartment-sized miniature server. Yeah, I don't. I don't have a strong strong answer there. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, you know the B links are are most of them. They're Ryzen. They're all x86, so you can run Linux on them. You can run anything that can run a server on it. So uh, you sure should make a miniature server. A lot of people are using miniature PCs like that as server management. So I think you could, depending upon your flavor, whether you want to run Windows Server or uh, um, or Linux. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I, I, uh, I, I don't know. I don't have an answer. Next question. Douglas Carmichael here. Uh, Meta is offering an iOS developer certificate program in partnership with Coursera. Coursera. Uh, would programs like it be more marketable to employers than similar non-branded programs like Code with Chris? Uh, you know, I... The bottom line is with, with the training, you just have to get started. Like, it doesn't really matter. I mean, like, I, I just, you know, the, the main thing is, is that what you should be doing is sitting down and working through and pick one. And uh, if you don't like it, then try another one. But otherwise, whether it's Coursera or Code with Chris or a thousand days of Swift or, or whatever, or hundred days of Swift, I think it's not a thousand days, that would be really long. Um, but a uh, but hundred days of Swift, uh, you know, the bottom line is, is what's most important is to, is to get coding. Um, so if you're interested in getting coding, um, you know, carve out two hours a day and, you know, or even one hour a day and just do it, you know, and, and just, just make sure that there's a certain time of the day where you're not going to do anything else and you're just going to do that thing and you will learn how to code. You know, So, so it's not, uh, so it doesn't, it, it's, it, it really, I mean, you can keep on trying to figure out which one is the right one, but the bottom line is, is that all you need to do is commit yourself. All of these are people spent a lot of time on all of them to make them usable. Um, and they may not be perfect, um, but they're, they're all going to kind of move you down that path. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, no decent employer is just going to say, oh, well, he's got a certificate. Uh, you're hired. They're going to test you, and then they're going to test you again. And then, you know, if you make it through the third level of test, then you've got a shot at an interview. Um, I wouldn't worry about how you get there. Just get there. Yeah, and, and the bottom line is, is that, you know, it's, it, it is um, – you have to kind of, you're probably, if you're over, I mean, I'll, I'll, if you're over 25 years old, you're probably want to be thinking about how you're going to develop your own content. You know, how, you, how are you going to develop your own apps? Um, most companies that are looking for junior programmers that are going to hire someone are generally going to be looking for, you're going to be a freelancer working for them, or you're going to be, you know, as a coder. Um, but they're, you know, they're, when they're in their hiring phase, they're usually hiring junior programmers out of college and they're, they're hiring junior programmers that are um, usually younger. I, I, we can talk about ageism and so on and so forth, but I think that that's really the key, key, key. If you're programming older than that, you're really looking at, you know, how do you build something? You're, you're learning to program so that you can build your own apps um, or freelance as far as, as far as a larger team. So um, the big thing is, is you really want to think about what your, what apps do you want to build? You know, and what, what, what do you want to solve with coding? I don't know. The, the hardest part I have is that I don't know how 
people can just learn to code. Like to me, you, you learn, I've, every time I've done any coding, it's all been because I was trying to create something. Like I was, I had a problem that I was trying to solve when I was, uh, my first program was was written because I got tired of r- rolling dice for non-player characters in Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I, I just, do, I, I'm killing these guys so fast. Like, why, why am I having to go through and build the thing? So I, I went through and I built all the stuff so I could just hit a button and it would just print a non-player character out. And and so that was my first, my, my first real program was was to do that. And I just kept on building programs that solve problems. But I don't know how to even learn. I don't know how to learn anything if I'm not solving a problem. If I don't have a problem to solve with almost any skill, it's very hard for me to uh, absorb it. So, so think about what you want to actually create. Um, go through the process. The, there's nothing better if you're talking to an employer or someone you want to work with. There's nothing better than saying, here's the app that I have on the App Store. You know, and you can download it and see how it works. And it should should work well and it should be clean and it should download and it shouldn't do anything goofy and it should be useful. Those are all things that people are going to look for. So, but the most important thing is to start getting those apps built. And, um, and I think that uh, these are, these are, uh, that's what I would stay focused on. Next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana asking, how are you protecting your gear from lightning strikes? Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Well, I'll tell you how I'm protecting my gear from lightning strikes. I'm living in Los Angeles where we don't have lightning, but maybe <laughs> once every 10 years or so. So I'm I've guessing, never I'm had a problem that, with lightning strikes. I'm but, guessing that uh, Roscoe, Roscoe has uh, moved moved somewhere where there's suddenly a lot of lightning. <laughs> yeah, but but to give you real a real answer is you could uh, you could put a uh, lightning arrester or a, you know, uh, on top of your house, a little little spiky uh, antenna type thing that's connected with a large large uh, uh, cable that runs down into about a ten foot long copper ground uh, grounding rod that is driven into the ground. Uh, so, a lightning rod is one way to attract the lightning to discharge it before it gets a chance to to harm your stuff and run it into ground safely. But the problem with that is. If you're connected to the grid, uh, lightning can strike, uh, you know, four houses down from you uh, and come in on your electrical service, on your telephone lines or on your cable TV lines and sneak into your house. Lightning is very sneaky. It likes to jump from, pat, from you know, metal item to metal item and travel around your home through the wiring. So uh, there's no foolproof way. The best way is to carry good insurance or live in California. <laughs> Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, and stay away from Fort Myers, Florida. It's the lightning capital of the U.S. I was down there for a while, and it it's, it can get messy. All right. Um, uh, just a quick reminder: we've got uh, it's it's a busy week this week. Uh, we have uh, Proso Acoustic panels tomorrow. So uh, Rick um, uh, Matai uh, will be here, and he's going to be talking about uh, acoustic treatment uh, questions, uh, probably both with his services and others. So you definitely want to um, check that out. I think I know a lot of us are trying to figure out how to make our our space is a little less echoey, and he's going to be talking a little bit about how that actually works. Uh, really excited about Thursday. We've got HDR, the objective color metrics. Uh, Chris Seeger, Michael Drazen, and Jim Toten are all going to be here. Um, Chris Seeger is the N- NBC Universal's director of advanced content production, and he is deep into this. And of course, we've had Michael and Jim on the show before. Uh, we're really, it's going to be a very deep 
Thursday. <laughs> so, so I think that it's going to be a great second hour. And then um, Friday, we're going to be talking about uh, the production show and tell. Um, so uh, production show and tell, people like me and other people here on the panel that have things that they've done in the past, we'll show a couple pictures, talk a little bit about what the challenges are. And so we'll be talking about that on Friday. And then finally on Saturday, um, audio description with Joel Snyder. I got to say that you really should be looking at um, what... Uh, you know, what's happening on Saturday, the accessibility uh, is really, really turning out well. It's really an eye-opening experience. And technically, you know, we're just taking on a lot of new stuff there. So it's it's a really, really interesting um, uh, hour uh, or two hours to, to check out. So definitely check that out on Saturday. All right, we are now changing subjects and uh, and jumping into our second hour. And uh, we have Alan Hawks here. And Alan and I, as I've said in the past, are old friends. And we've worked together quite a few times on quite a few projects. And I didn't, you know, I didn't think, I, I asked Alan to come on and like, can you come on every once in a while and talk about some stuff and make it work? And Alan, Alan of course, thought about it for a little while. And now he's got a year and a half worth of monthly things to talk to us about walking us through the entire pipeline of how C the CG pipeline of how it actually works. And, and there's, I don't think there's anybody better to, to walk us through this. So uh, really excited to have Alan. And Alan, I'm going to hand it off to you to, um, to start um, showing, giving us a little bit. Now, as you watch Alan talk about this stuff, go ahead and throw questions into Makana and we'll get to your questions uh, in a couple minutes. Go ahead, Alan. Thanks, Alex. Good to be here. Uh, happy to share some, again, we had this uh, discussion a little bit where you were asking me well, what subjects you want to talk about. And I really kind of realized, well, there is, there are so many phases within the 3D production pipeline. And I thought might be good to just break down each step. Um, some of them people are probably familiar with, some of them not so much. So today we're just going to be going over the entire 3D production process. I'm just going to be outlining it really quick. I have a quick kind of, I'm just going to go through slide by slide and break it down. And as Alex said, uh, if you have questions as I'm going along, uh, just make note of that or put it in the system and we'll take care of those after. So I'm going to go ahead and share. All right. That's so pretty. Yeah, it's beautiful, right? I can't take credit for this. This is a graphic uh, that I pulled, but... I've gone through and embellished it a bit, um, and it really kind of shows the the entire production process. So the first thing to keep in mind is you have uh, three main phases of production. You have pre-production, you have actual production phase, and then you have post-production. And each one of these processes has its own specific uh, things to kind of keep in mind and its own steps. And we're just going to be going through all of those. So the first one is obviously pre-production. And the first thing you get is an idea, right? I have an idea. So this is the ideation phase. And all I would suggest about this is ideas are easy. Execution is hard, right? So the first thing you want to do with your ideas, I would recommend just writing them all down and keeping a log and, and kind of filtering through and deciding on what is the best idea I want to create. Um, and once you have the idea, you actually try to put it together into some kind of comprehensible format or story. And you want to be able to pitch that story to your potential audience. Um, but you need to work out 
and let me let, let me kind of preface this a little bit by saying the 3D produ production pipeline in general, think of it as a stack of dominoes. It's not it's a very linear process, and you want to work out every single step in order in order to maximize your efficiency. Because if you make a change further down the production pipeline, it is a stack of dominoes. So you'd really try to go through and get your story worked out. Uh, get all the details worked out as much as you possibly can before obviously going on to the next step. So after you've worked out your story, you move on to the actual storyboard. And this is where you actually take pictures and produce visuals. And I'm sure you've all seen this. Um, the storyboarding phase is where you kind of hash out the ideas and see how everything flows is the community is the message getting across? Is the story continuity actually? Does it feel cohesive? And and um, you know to get to get and to get one of your points of how important this is. Uh, one of the things that you know we hear a lot about with Pixar and you know Pixar is probably one of the best at doing this is that each one of these areas is they they're pretty savage about <laughs> you know they they make you prove it you know at every at every level they make you prove it before you get to go to the next the next phase because there's so much money involved and this is i mean you know when you start going down uh, you know the, the the path there's so much money involved that they and you know there's so much weight that starts to inertia that starts to build um so that uh, you see you know these these are really sometimes some of these movies might stay in storyboard for months or sometimes years you know for for some for some shows Absolutely, because the further down the pipeline you get, uh, the more expensive mistakes become, right? So you really yeah. want to work out all these details as they are. So, um, Okay, so next we have the animatic phase. So the animatic is when you basically add, you take your storyboard and you typically take, sometimes you'll just take the frames from that storyboard. I've seen all kinds of anim animatic, depending on the budget and depending on any number of factors. But the bottom line is what you're trying to do is take it and add your motion to it and pre-record your dialogue. And, and you know, you're, you're getting a feel for how does this play back in a visual form? So uh, animatics can be put together in any number of ways, but what you're trying to do is get the overall timing, the overall dialogue, and a rough edit. Not necessarily final, you know, edit, but as close as you can possibly get to, you know, how many scenes are you going to need? Uh, what is the dialogue going to be? How is it playing back? So it's, <laughs> I, I often joke around that, you know, the visuals in South Park are basically an animatic, right? It's just insanely good storytelling. And and be, if an animatic and the story is good enough, it's visual, it's actually great in this form. But yeah. it can be anything from animated storyboards uh, to, again, I've seen any number of visuals. Some people just draw it all out. Some people actually, uh, if you have really good drawing skills, they'll actually add some a few additional frames in there. Some people use 3D. Uh, it, it really depends. But the bottom line is you're just trying to get the the point across and you know what it is you're going to be creating. You know how many scenes you need. Yeah, and, and you know, I think that, you know, I, that was my first job in the film industry was actually animatics uh, for Star Wars Episode One, And 
the producer said they, they probably saved somewhere around $50 million on, because of the animatics, because we made a lot of decisions. The pod race was 22 minutes when we first started. And by the time it got to the to the film, I think it was like seven or eight minutes. And so there were a lot of things that got cut out of it, but we were able to do that cheaply by having one artist just throwing things together, um, you know, much lighter versions of everything. Putting And we put a lot of work into it. We were rendering an electric image and compositing with After Effects and building things in Form Z. So it wasn't like it was, we were just throwing together little pictures of things. I mean, it looked like a Saturday morning cartoon, especially, I got to say, once you added sound, Ben Burt added sound to it, we, it, could have been a movie and we would have been fine. <laughs> like it was, it was a really, you know, um, because all those, all those pieces were already there and it made it much easier once it got to ILM uh, to um, have it turn into a, a final piece. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and, and again, depending on how many, the extent of the resources that you have, um, animatics can look pretty polished and pretty entertaining. Actually, it should definitely get the point or the essence of what it is you're creating across. And this is where you put the resources into hashing out these details before you start working into the polish into the final, you know, content creation. So, so absolutely. So the next thing is once you get it all worked out, you move on to design, right? And this is where you typically get uh, your previs department to work out the details of how your character is going to look. Um, typically this involves traditional drawing skills more and more. This is actually involving some AI because AI is being used a lot in pre-visualizations. Um, but it's basically hashing out the visuals. What's this all going to look like, right? So that's pre-production. And once you have that all kind of, uh, figured out, you move on to the actual production. So first step in actual production is layout. Um, layout is really... It's, it's about figuring out what assets you're going to need, right? You, you go through every single scene in your story and you got to look through and say, what is in this scene? What is in this scene? What is in this scene? Is, do I have a car? Do I have a character? Do I have a, a living room? Do, in that living room, is there furniture? Is there, you know, whatever objects you're going to need? So it's really uh, a process of laying out your space that you're going to need to visually uh, show and then figuring out exactly the assets that you're going to need. So ideally when you come, when you finish with the layout, uh, you, you have an asset list and that asset list, and then you go through and create an asset list. So you know everything that's going to need to be created to produce your shot. Right. Um, and once you have that, you can move on to R&D, so research and development, right? And this is where you say, okay, we know what we're going to be doing. Uh, we know what it is we're going to be creating now. How are we going to do it? What are the tools? What's the latest and greatest tools that we have out there? What's the software we're going to use? Um, and what is going to be our, our production pipeline? You go through, you identify the technical challenges, uh, the visual challenges, any challenges associated with it. And you say, how are we going to approach this? Um, so it's, it's really just about coming up and pre-figuring out and identifying all the different types of effects you're going to need and, and how it is you're actually going to go about creating it. So ideally, once you come out of the R&D phase, you know your production pipeline. You know, at least to the extent foreseeable, uh, the, 
you can never foresee every single issue, but you have your general production pipeline, what kind of software you're going to use, what techniques, you know, things like that. So uh, then you jump into modeling. And this is where people are mostly familiar with kind of this phase of the 3D production pipeline where, okay, I'm going to model something, uh, got to actually go through and create it. Um, and then you go through and you have to actually, once you have a modeled asset, you have to make it look, any, any modeled asset just shows up as gray and boring, right? So you got to go through and actually texture it. And texturing is where you go through and pull from real world textures. It's also referred to as shading, as assigning materials. This is where you get the look and feel. Um, it can involve quite a bit of work to get the materials to read just right, to get the textures to read just right. Um, and depending on what the visual, this the, the texturing can vary widely depending on what do you want this to look like? Do you want it to look completely photorealistic? Do you want it to look hyper-realistic or you know, believe it or not, uh, you know, I keep coming back to South Park. South Park is originally animated with construction paper and cameras, right? But it's actually produced in Maya 3D software now. It's kind of like putting out a, a match with a fire hose uh, in terms of what you're actually creating. But it just goes it, to illustrate did, the point. It did sound like it was a bit of a mess when they first did it. You know, like it was definitely... Uh, what were we doing here? When you talk to some of the artists that were there, it was like, why are we doing a, a you know, South Park, which was essentially done in paper? Why were we doing it? In, in, but it, over time, of course, it scaled up. But it, I think it was a, it was a huge leap of faith when they, when they actually did it, because they did it, you know, 20 years ago or whatever, you know, or more than 20 years ago. Um, in 20, I think 2002 or 2003 is when they, because I think the very first ones they did, you know, the way they were doing them. Um, but I think that they, they got into that pipeline pretty, pretty early and it was a complete mess. <laughs> yeah. And, I've heard yeah. stories as well. And again, it's, it's one of these things where we started off with construction paper. Why are we going to uh, the 3d production pipeline? Can it, the reason they did it is it's more efficient. Once you work out the details, it's more efficient, but I use it as to illustrate the point where you can produce Pixar style content. You can produce, ILM visuals, you know, any any kind of high-end visual effects with 3D, but you can also produce um, something as simple as replicating a construction paper, you know, cartoon like South Park. So it just depends on what the visuals are supposed to look like. There's even things called toon shaders, cartoon shaders. There's all kinds of different effects that you can get in 3D. People tend to think of it mostly as you know, looking realistic, but um, but you can use it to achieve any, any kind of visuals you want. So, uh, so after you get the texturing, you move on to rigging. Rigging is actually a very complicated subject. Um, when I was teaching myself, uh, the 3d production pipeline, this is, this kind of became an all absorbing like world. I remember spending months and months and months just trying to figure out how to rig a character. Um, so rigging is basically, if you have a character, you, you have to d figure out for all of these assets that you're generating, how does it need to move? Obviously characters, depending on what motion you want out of those characters are going to have the most setup. uh, things like skinning it's called, well, we'll get into it later, but skin, you have to add, uh, deformations for skin. Uh, you have to do 
all the controls for facial animations. Um, but the the rigging is a is a very uh, important setup, and you basically have to go through every single asset. Does it need to animate? How does it need to animate? And once you animate or once you uh, determine how it needs to animate, you got to go through and set up each asset and rig it in order to animate effectively. It's an incredibly important part of the production process. Um, if things are rigged right, then you move into the animation phase and the animation will go much, much, much smoother if everything is actually properly rigged. So. Uh, so the animation, everybody's familiar with this one. This is where you bring the characters to life. You bring in whatever objects. Uh, animation, people think in terms of just character, but a lot of things can be obviously at, uh, animated. Um, cameras can be animated. Objects can be animated. Uh, obviously, characters animated. Uh, backgrounds can be animated. Effects, dynamic simulations. There's, there's a whole bunch in terms of animation. Uh, what we're specifically talking about here, and usually what's worked out is the primary, the cameras, the the actual characters and whatnot. And then once you're done with that, you move on to visual effects. So visual effects is any effects that are built on top of that base render. Uh, it can encompass things like, again, dynamic simulations, fluid simulations, fires, explosions, um, any kind of, uh, well, basically there's a, there's when you, when you're talking about this kind of animation, it's actually keyframing. it's manually going through and setting keys and whatnot. But when you get into VFX, typically it's referring to things like, um, dynamic simulations where the computer is actually going through and figuring out and solving how does fluids move fires explosions, things that would basically be impossible to animate. Um, so it's built on top of the base animation that's hand created. So, and once you're done with that, you move on to lighting. Lighting's incredibly important, just as in actual uh, cinema, right? You, the lighting is very, very similar. Uh, lighting is extremely important for achieving the mood of a shot and probably one of the most underestimated parts of the pipeline. It's not as simple as just like flipping on a switch because lighting can actually affect mood so much. Um, and it can affect uh, how things are basically, it can affect your storytelling very strongly. So, so lighting would be the next phase. And then once you're done with that, you move on to the final rendering. And this is where the computer software gets to work. All your hard work starts to pay off. And, and ideally, you just kind of look back and put let the computer chug away with what's known as typically you're using ray tracing. It's a very highly, highly, highly CPU or GPU intensive task uh, where you get massive amounts of render farms and you, and they just chug away on all these frames, rendering all these frames and they produce the frames for you to play back into an animation. And, and what's interesting is, is that in, in the industry, for about as long as I can remember, the what has been considered the right time for a frame to render is about 45 minutes. 
like for each frame. Yes. And what happens is, is that it, it just keeps getting better. But everyone, I think that everyone's decided that that's their pain point is 45 minutes. So if it fits inside the 45 minute box and we're talking every single frame. So that's 24 of those 45 minute you know, it says, you know, for a second. So a second rep, now that 45 minutes may be split among multiple CPUs. So it doesn't, it may not be in real time. If you've got 2000 CPUs and you throw a render across eight or 10 of them, of course, you're getting a frame in 10 or, you know, five or 10 minutes. Um, so it, it's, it's in the CPU time. And what's really interesting is that when you talk about rendering, that CPU time is actually calculated, um, uh, you know, and kept track of and often charged for. So, um, you know, the, uh, so the, one of the things that they, they learned at, at ILM was if you don't charge for the processing time, you don't invest in the processors. And so what they did is they, they shifted it over where it was, I don't know what the number was, it was a dollar or two an hour of using the, using the CPUs. And they built a very complex system that would, uh, there was a system called OBQ that would go out and, and, and look for everything that it could, that it could manage. In fact, it would even take the, the indies, the, the, um, the boxes that the SGI boxes that the artists used. If you walked away for lunch, when the screensaver came up, the screensaver would go back to the system and go, Hey, I can take frames <laughs> you know, and, and I can, you know, I can, I can, I can render some frames for you and it would start, you know, start rendering to you. Um, and so, so these are, uh, you know, that, um, that rendering becomes a big deal. And I guess, McKay, would you say that the, as you get past the modeling area and texturing those, you think about it linearly, but a lot of times those are all happening at the same time at that point, because you're, you're rendering and you're going, oh, that I need more detail in the model. That texture isn't working. The animation needs, you know, and those things all start to kind of blend together. Uh, would you would you say that, that that process becomes a little bit more foggy? Well, I would say the rendering is where <laughs> it's where the that that's where you actually start to see your work to come together and you, you see the fruit of your labors, so to speak. And uh, depending on any number of factors. Like I can tell you my personal workflow. Usually I render uh, either thumbnails really, really small uh, yeah. and just to get something out quickly and get the essence of it. And then I'll render high res, but maybe every every second, you know, so instead of 30 frames for one second, I'm just getting high resolution frames for every second. Because uh, to your point, there's always things that you think, you, no matter how good you think you got it, there's always something you missed and there's always problems that, that come come about and when you're putting an hour like you said 45 minutes an hour into each frame um that's that's a lot of downtime that's a lot of cpu time and you you want to make sure uh basically mistakes can be expensive in terms of time so so yeah uh that there's always something that comes out and typically you, you can kind of plan on rendering things at full quality at least three times before you actually get to your final. So, and if you're doing it more than that, you're not managing your time very well. Like one of the big, one of the things you see with folks who start is often they're rendering full res frames and all the frames every single time, and they're walking where they're like, "Well, I had to render all afternoon." And you're like, "Why are you doing that? Like, why, why, do you, why are you rendering during the day? You know, like you know, you 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 know, and and like you have to think about that pipeline to be efficient. You know the I know when I was at um, uh, when I was at ILM and we were rendering, I was rendering stuff out, and my stuff took a long time to render. And I would, in the morning, I would take the renders from the day, the night before, composite them in in After Effects. One of the reasons that you render in passes 
is so that you can go into your compositor and you can sit there and tweak everything. You can tweak the reflectivity and the, so you don't render the whole frame. Some people do. I mean, you can render that and there's some advantages to that. But for a long time, we've rendered things in many passes. In fact, the um, I was, again, watching Mission, Mission Impossible last night and I saw the infamous shot, which is right at the very end. There's a British Airways shot that John Knoll rendered. It was, and he rendered it in passes and no one had ever seen that before. And he was at an electric image event uh, down in LA and he, showed pass rendering and it it was like literally a 747 when we were all doing biplanes i mean everyone's head just exploded and it changed the way all of us did all of our work from then on it was like 1995 or something like that it just we all started thinking of passes and like the queenship was like 22 passes of of stuff that, that came out that gave me control so i would comp it then i'd go to dailies and let it render let after effects took 45 minutes just to render the comp and so then I would go and watch dailies and then I'd come back and John would come over and take a look at it and give me notes. And then I would fiddle in exactly the way that, that McKay is talking about. I would fiddle with little changes like, oh, I'm going to render this little frame. I'm going to render this little thing and see if I fixed whatever the, was on my checklist, right? And, and figured it out. And then I'd render a little test, a little postage stamp for lunch. I'd go away for lunch and, I, and then I'd come back and I'd look at what I did and see if that was what I needed. And then I would make all the tweak, all the final tweaks. And then about 5.30, I started packaging my render. So I had to send all these passes out. So I had to package the whole render out. And it would take me about 45 minutes <laughs> to package the render. And then I would send it. And then I'd, and, and, and then I'd, uh, um, then I'd go to home. <laughs> then I'd start over the next morning. And it, it was, that was all you did all day. Like it was just, you know, for, I did that for, you know, over a year and a half. You just, you just do those pieces and um, to get those out. But it, it is, uh, it, it's a very logistic, with all of these things, I would say, I don't know you can agree, but it's very logistical. Like, you know, they, there's a, there's a thing that I used to have on my wall that said, it was from Omar Bradley that said um, that, that amateurs talk about strategy and professionals talk about logistics. And 3D is a game of logistics, you know, of, of figuring out, like, how are you actually going to, um, you know, put this out? We think of it as artistic, but it's, it, it really is a logistical game. Um, yeah, Courtney, you want to add some? Yeah, I had a question. And thanks for laying out this uh, illustrated uh, version of the pipeline. That's really great. One thing I wanted to, to, to ask about in this pipeline is... Uh, you know, if you look at the credits in any of the major, you know, VFX rich movies like, you know, Indiana Jones 5, which has ILM as one of the major ones, you look at the credits and there may be 10 different visual effects companies listed in the credits. How, where do they divide up those responsibilities and what are all those other visual effects companies besides ILM if they're the main carrier, you know, the main lead on this? What are all those other visual effects companies doing and where is that division of labor decided? Is it waited till they get into a time crunch at the end and they have to farm it out? Uh, how does that how does that play out? It's in almost every visual effects movie I've ever seen. You look at the credits and they last 20 minutes because there's like 15 different visual effects houses. I'll jump into that a little bit. Uh, the, you know, a, a lot of times different visual effects firms have different specialties. And so um, it's, it's less expensive sometimes and it's also sometimes more effective. Like for instance, when it comes to characters, uh, Weta is kind of the world expert at that. Like because of the Gollum specifically, uh, Weta, Weta has become in Lord of the Rings, Weta really built a core 
capacity to do characters that is probably better than anyone else in the world when it comes to realistic characters that are going to have all the motions that you want. And so you you might farm out all of those characters to to um, to Weta um, to make that actually um, to get that done. You have compositing teams, so there's some you know sometimes it's not cost effective. A lot of the larger firms got rid of their compositing, you know, a lot of their roto teams and so on and so forth. The roto is usually not done in the United States anymore. Um, and so, uh, so the, um, which really caused more hardship than I think they expected because roto was a kind of a imprecise thing that had a lot of margin in it. <laughs> and visual effects firms have paid for sending it overseas because the, that margin went away. And that was a huge error, you know, error corrector when other things weren't working. Um, I think that you also have, you know, there's there's ones, the de-aging is another one that's being used. So, you know, there's, that one was used and not credited for a long time, you know, so they, there was a lot of things in in actors' contracts to de-age them um, using a variety of tools. And those weren't, you, oftentimes they didn't show up until there were some articles about it. They didn't show up in the in the credits. Hollywood's so, best kept secret. Exactly. <laughs> it's been going on for quite some time. Yeah. Um, and uh, anyway, so so I think that there's there's different specialties that they, that they work with. And oftentimes uh, those teams, there's also relationships that the teams have with the directors. Um, the directors have worked with them and they, they want them to work on a couple shots, you know, here and there. And, and, and oftentimes the, you know, if, especially if the, if those shots are easily containable. So I've got a bunch of shots that all belong together. They're not very complicated. I don't need to use the huge CG pipeline to, to make that work. These are, these are matte matte shots or these are, you know, real, real, a, a group of shots that fit together that aren't hard to do and I can hand it off to another team. And it does, to your point, get to capacity at some point. You know, when you when you talk about a lot of these, you know, a, a company like ILM might be working on a lot of different things and it's less expensive and easier for them to hire out um, some of the work than it is to add to more staff because one of the big pro- one of the things that big visual effects firms try not to do they do it a fair bit but people complain about it a lot and comp- larger ones like ILM tend to try to avoid is expanding and contracting so you hire what they don't want to do is necessarily hire a bunch of artists and then lay them all off you know now there's some companies that's how they work and it makes it makes the artists a little crazy um, to be constantly hired in for three months and then let go as soon as the project's ended if there's not another project on the other end so it's easier sometimes to say well this is the capacity we have and we have more we just hire out we, we take the easier shots that don't really require us um, to to work also ILM used to the big thing with ILM is it didn't want to work on anything that didn't require new software. Like if it didn't require R&D, ILM didn't want to work on it um, because that they was wanted to amortize their R&D over, over that. 100%. 100%. George yes. wanted to specifically. Yeah. Like he wanted to build bigger Star Wars shots and so he wanted Hollywood to pay for that development. And and so he that's that was so ILM would often get rid of any, any shot that was wrote. Um, and and send it off to another firm to to work on because it didn't there's no there was no upside for them as far as they were concerned. Well, the thing you're mentioning is how how the work is divided up. Is it compartmentalized into individual series of shots so that there doesn't have to be a lot of collaboration? Not always. If you were if you were doing Golem in the middle, you'd have to collaborate a great deal with the people that were doing the background, the compositing, the lighting, sometimes all that stuff. But sometimes uh, it's sometimes it's it's compartmentalized. Sometimes it's rendered in passes, so mm-hmm. passes are rendered by different teams and then brought together. And sometimes they're figuring out the entire workflow so that they can pass their Maya files. That's what one of the advantages of USDZ, the Universal Scene Description, is being able to take an entire project and move it from one place to the other. Um, and so they're the 
to McKay's that R and D that McKay talked about. Sometimes mm-hmm. that's months while they're working on everything else. There's months of figuring out how these pipelines are going to tie together so that they can move. And there's lots of tests of okay, let's move this across, let's move this across, and so it just really depends on the project. But they can do simple element, single elements being sent back and forth uh, to scenes being sent back and forth to passes or com- whole composites. So it just, it just depends on, it also depends on the advance, uh, the, how advanced the visual effects firm is. Like a, a Weta to ILM is a very well-known pipeline. Mm-hmm. A ILM to some, somebody in Bulgaria, not as well-known. And so they'll, yeah. the, the, you know, that one will be slightly different. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, another reason you may not expect is that uh, the road is littered with failed uh, VFX companies because the margins are kind of small and the implications of what the director does and makes changes puts these companies in and out of business it's, very rapidly. So I think to, to some degree, they may be spreading the uh, uh, the exposure by having multiple companies doing it. Yeah, it's, it's a logistics problem. And if you don't get the logistics right, you, you die real quick. Um, uh, let's go to the first question. First one in from Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada. How much is temperament or patience a factor in creating 3D content? Go ahead, Alan. Uh, are you talking about just temperament, just yeah, personal I think it's just, temperament? Yeah. T- personality? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I lost, my, I lost my patience a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> you, you have to have insane amount of patience in this process. Uh, to, to Alex's point, everything he, he said, it's it's a logistics challenge as much as it is anything. Um, you're you're trying to come up with a creative vision, right? Uh, to 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 create a cohesive piece of art, if you will. You have a vision in your mind, and pretty much the the amount of technical challenges that you're trying to solve around it, it actually just requires a tremendous amount of patience and planning. And just kind of sticking to it, and 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 to some extent of uh, uh, patience in terms of this is as good as it's going to get. Like usually, uh, any visual effects shot is it's basically you run out of time, you run out of budget, or you run out of patience, right? Uh, one of those three, and and you're trying to get it as good as you possibly can within any one of those limiting factors. Um, but patience is a and and a and a level head is just hugely important. And if you don't have it, you're not going to be able to last that long. So, next question, Robert Sababadi from Poland asks: Can you talk a little about a more agile approach to 3D production? Agile processes allow you to fail fast and not go too far before turning back. Um. I would say that I don't know if this 3D production process is agile in general. I would say getting with with the advancements that are happening in AI, with advancements that are happening in the tools, is getting to a point where you can have a little more of an organic, agile, creative process, if you will. But for the most part, it's not agile. And and you, you have to have control parameters in there. Otherwise, the process is going to control you. You know, so yeah. I mean, I I know that when when I uh, for a lot of stuff that I did, and I did the same thing in programming that I do that I still do when I do projects, which is that I would do a pass really fast. Like I have an idea for how this model is going to get built, or I have an idea how this shot's going to get built, and I would do it in a day. Like just I'm just going to throw things together, figure it all out, and then I'd go, okay, this didn't work, and this is a hard part, and this is something I didn't think about, and da, 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 da. and then I would go back and just throw everything away. I wouldn't keep any of it, and I would build it again. 
and I would try to do it correctly. And then, then I throw all that away. That would take a couple a day or two. Then I would really pipeline it. <laughs> like, okay, now I, I've, I've, I've run up against it a couple times and now I understand what the, what the issues are. And now what, and that's the R and, and I would call that the R and D phase that, that McKay was talking about there. And then I would build out whatever I was going to do at full resolution and take time to make all my curves correct and make sure that my bevels work and make sure that there's no, you know, um, poorly formed polygons. And, you know, all those things are, are things that I would do, um, at the, at the, at the very end there. Um, the other thing is, is that I think the animatics process is very much of an agile, you know, that's the, that's where the agileness comes from is the storyboards and the animatics where, I mean, we would do for a pod ray shot, we might do 20 or 30 takes of that pod of that shot where we're playing with the camera, we're playing with this other things and we're cutting it into an edit. We're cutting it actually into a scene and seeing how it works. And so I think that's, you know, once it gets out of that phase, it becomes a lot less agile. <laughs> like as, as McKay said, it, it's now... It's now this huge tank with, you know, with all this stuff and it's really hard to turn. But, and that's why I think that a lot of people don't spend enough time in pre-production and you end up with the movies that we get. <laughs> yes. so, that's, yeah. that's actually one of the biggest challenges we have. If you have a controlled production environment and where people familiar with the visual effects process, they kind of know, I, I kind of spoke to this in the beginning, it's dominoes, right? You want to lay up those dominoes and you don't, if you make a, a change early on in that process, all those dominoes are going to fall and you're going to have to redo everything. And if you don't take that into a fact, uh, to a factor, it's, it's going to exponentially reduce your efficiency of creating your project. So you have to work out all those details. And one of the biggest challenges I personally have working with agencies, agencies are that they just want to be able to make any changes they want at any time, very organically. And it just doesn't work that way. So trying to temper this creative process, well, it does that challenge. work that way if the if the budget isn't fixed it works great yeah. <laughs> so, so like, like I, meant, I was like I, I i you know i would always like when agencies would ask me to do something so i'd be like sure it's your nickel you know like like you know you're paying me per hour you know so so like i can i can do any change you want you know so if they um, pay for the privilege we'll yeah. do it as many times as you want right exactly but exactly but that, if it's that's fixed, the challenge yeah, yeah. yeah. and that's yeah. that's where com that's where visual effects companies get themselves into trouble is fixed shot prices mm -hmm. with folks making changes. Um, you have to be very careful about your contracts, about what it says you can and can't do because something that seems very simple, oh, I just want to take this out or I just want this to move a little bit faster over here can ripple, as McKay said, can, or as Alan said, can ripple to a, an entire, um, you know, different, different way to do it. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, you mentioned agility and you were talking earlier about South Park. A lot of people don't realize that that show has a production pipeline of six days from concept to air. Mm -hmm. So they think of it, they write it, they record it, they animate it, and it airs within six days because they can tackle topical subjects of what's going on in the news this week, et cetera, and make fun of it. So, you know, that's probably the steepest pipeline because a typical animated, animated, uh, you know, half hour animated television show, you know, is six to eight months. It goes to Korea or to do the in-between to do all the ink and paint or whatever is done now, digital ink and paint. Uh, and it comes back. And so it can be, you know, eight months between the concept or writing to the air date, but, South Park is a different animal. Six days, they typically turn that 
that you're I, I often bring up South Park as an example precisely for that reason. That's why I said it's a South Park is a glorified animatic. Let's be and that is where you have the flexibility in that agility that you're talking about because those visuals aren't so polished. It's all about story and timing. So I actually use South Park. I'm like a good animatic is basically South Park is a perfect glorified animatic. So yeah, and and I think that what's really interesting to see is how Unreal is going to change a lot of this stuff. I mean, even when we were using Motion Builder, which was probably 15 years ago, uh, 15 or more years ago, doing real time and being able to watch the whole thing in real time, build all your cameras in real time. And then, you know, in Motion Builder back then, we would have to still hit render, but it would take a minute to do the entire scene as opposed to, you know, days of, of rendering. It wasn't as good a quality, but now when you look at Unreal, you know, there's so much uh, there. The only little tricky parts right now are some of the camera effects and anti-aliasing and stuff like that. But as that gets done, um, you know, I think that especially when you're thinking about, uh, like I look back when I was much younger, I, I don't, I look back, I watched it now and I don't think I thought it was nearly as impressive as I did when I was in my 20s or whatever. But uh, there was a show called Reboot, a little um, a, a all CG. Was the first all CG uh, Saturday morning, you know, cartoon Canadian, or whatever. Canadian production, wasn't it? Yeah, and it was called Reboot. And I always want to reproduce that, like in Unreal, just to see what it would like. Like re- I've I've all often thought, like if I had time, I would just do scenes out of that. Um, it's my my two big bucket things is scenes out of that or scenes out of Johnny Quest, all in Unreal. <laughs> Be fun. All right, next question. Next question in from Bobby Rafferty in Florida. Has 3D tools become more accessible for people to use beyond the studios? Yeah, I would say. I mean, I, I, yes, Ab- absolutely. Well, there's no question. Um, 3D is actually getting to a point, especially with, I think we're about to see one of the most, with what's happening with AI, once AI hits 3D, we're going to see an absolute explosion in potential ease of use where you're going to start uh, the, it's going to be much, much, much more accessible. So I would say it's been accessible actually for a long time, but it hasn't been easy. So accessibility and easy is different. 3D, the whole process is just insanely challenging and labor intensive. It's it, There's no way around that aspect of it. So. Yeah, even even when you think about the concept drawings and so on and so forth, what I do in Mid Journey now is you know insane compared to what what we would do before. Like, and, and just to come up with ideas, whether you use them or not, is is it's really moved along a long way forward. Yeah, imagine what happens when three D hits Mid Journey. You know, when yeah. those two worlds combine. Give me an object it's already, here. It, and... It's already happening. Like in Blender, uh, they're 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 writing things where you can combine. Midjourney, where you instead of modeling a tree, for example, in detail, you just model a sphere and a little trunk, you know, out of a cylinder and a, and a sphere, and you tell 3D, um, this is a tree, and let you know, let something uh, AI basically generate a tree for you. Yeah. It's it's not there yet, but you can see the potential being well, there, and that's going to massively increase the ease of use and efficiency of creating 3D. So. And 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 now you're even in um, in Photoshop. You can sit there and just paint out spaces. You know, you can just go. I just want a river here, and I want hills here, and you just kind of just with a real thick pen, just do that and hit go, and it'll just build a a, a scene for you. Again, I people say, well, that's all going to get re- that's all going to replace it. Right now, the problem is you don't have enough explicit control to really turn it into a film. But as a concept drawing, it it works really well. Go ahead, John. 
Adobe Project Gingerbread is their new 3D product that they're, it's in alpha testing right now. It looks fabulous. And is it doing, it's doing generative? Yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. Uh, next question. Next one in from Robert Sababody in Poland. What does a one-man 3D studio look like, and what sort of project can such a studio work on? Go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, this is a one-man 3D operation right here. Uh, small stuff, I mean, pieces of things is what you generally get when you're small and you specialize. I do a lot of motion graphic work, and uh, I've been lucky enough to get some trailer work out of Hollywood, and that means that I'm doing uh, DVD boxes in 3D and uh, moving them around, and nothing glorified. It's just kind of grunt work, but uh, I'm happy to have it. Yeah, probably one of the people that I that I would say is probably one of the best, and I don't know if he's still doing this or not, but one of the best uh, one-person uh, studios uh, was Eric Chavon, or Eric Chavin, uh, Chavin. Um, he uh, is was a matte painter at ILM, and then he went and moved far north of, of Seattle and lived in the middle of nowhere and just did visual effects. And the visual effects he did were for Lost, Alias. Um, and, he, and when I say he did some of the visual effects, he would typically do all the visual effects for that for that show. Um, and they would take all the raw plates. And if you do a search for Blackpool Studios, you'll probably see some images. I don't. I was looking for the website. I'm not sure if it's up. So I'm, I'm not sure if he's, he may have, he's a little older than I am. He may have retired. Um, but, uh, but he... Um, amazing artist, but really fast and really understood just how to throw things together. But if you look at, at if, if the demo reel's up there, if you look at it, we'll see if we can get him on. Um, uh, he was a single person and they would send him something in the same thing. They would send him something on Monday, on Friday, he'd send back the, the shots and they'd all be done. And so it just depends on how quick and how, how quick and dirty you can do a lot of those things. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, if you want a good example of this, look, uh, do a search for... Uh, 405 the movie and this you know here's here's a still out of it these two guys created this little uh, visual effects short that's really entertaining bruce Bran uh brandit and uh jeremy hunt and it'll show you how, what quality of effects you can do and this was with the tools that were available 10 years ago when did this come out you know 10 or 12 years ago 20 years ago no really I think Oh, yeah, it was 20 years ago. Yeah, it was the... 10 years ago. So we've come a long way. So it used to take two guys. Now, probably one guy on a weekend could have turned out the quality of this stuff. But it yeah. is possible to do with, you know, a limited amount of equipment, a limited uh, limited budget, uh, and just the time to put into doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Alan. Yeah, so uh, along the lines of what everybody was saying, what you can do in a one-man studio relative to what you used to be able to do uh, it's ever increasing. And with the advent of AI, I can only imagine the content generation. Uh, it's, it's a double-edged sword, you know, and some, it's almost too easy, right? But it's very, it's incredibly powering to a very small crew and or a single artist. Um, but I think we're about to see an exponential curve in what a single artist can do in the, in the upcoming years. So, Next question. Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado asks, when is 3D content necessary or just fluff on content? Uh, I, I think it just depends on how you use it. <laughs> you know, I think that a lot of times, I mean, I think we've gotten past a lot of the fluff phases of 3D. I mean, I think we use 3D because it was 3D for, uh, you know, there was a decade of us just making 3D logos and 3D everything and 3D this and 3D that. And I think we've gotten to a point where it's mostly used um, for, for something. Go ahead, Alan. 
Uh, you you kind of touched on my point there. It, it's really just a question of context. In terms of visual effects, uh, the context of visual effects, when is it fluff? Um, it, I always look at what what are you trying to tell in the story? Uh, what visuals are you trying to achieve? Is 3D going to be a viable option? Well, it depends. Uh, it, if you're, it depends on the challenge of creating it in in live footage. In other words, is there a specific reason to create it in 3D? Uh, some special effect you're trying to get, and if not, no, you don't need it. So um, I try to only use it where necessary. Good, Courtney. Yeah, if you're like me, you've become jaded against CGI and, and big motion pictures these days because I think the general audience is becoming tired of seeing you know things with you know transformers with five thousand different moving parts that are just so complex that you can't even watch them. Uh, and CGI has become, uh, you know, a, a lot of directors are turning back to doing practical effects, which we were working, talking about earlier, because of this, uh, you know, people are kind of getting tired of uh, CGI in major motion pictures these days. So if they're invisible effects, those are the greatest kind of visual effects that, that people don't even realize are being spoon fed, you know, CGI stuff because it's so good. They don't know it's there. Yeah, I think the uh, when people say they've gone back to practical effects, what it means is they're spending the proper amount of money for the d digital effects. <laughs> you know, like that's you know that that's my opinion. Is usually they're they're putting the the time into it. Uh, I think that good example is Avatar. I mean, I think it's some of the best CG I've ever I've ever seen. I you know when you it's it's impressive. You know, like and and that's what can happen if you have an unlimited budget. Uh, next question. Next question in from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What is drawing entities? I'm not sure what the context is for that question. So um, unless, yeah, stumped us. I don't us. know that one either. Yeah, I don't Sorry. know that one. Uh, next question. Robert Sababody from Poland. What sort of file style, or excuse me, size, storage size, are necessary to work with 3D productions, say for a one-minute film? I think that would depend on resolution. You know, like it just depends on how big, big it is. Uh, go ahead, Alan. Oh, I was just going to say, I, size is not really an issue anymore. I mean, there, we have such a massive amount of data for storage for so cheap. You got a couple terabyte drive, it'll handle most most of your projects. So, Yeah, I mean, the big thing is make sure to back it up because usually there's so much work in every frame that you just don't want to lose the project file. <laughs> so that's the, that would be the key to the operation. I can tell you back in, in the late 90s, uh, ILM, when I was working on Star Wars, seven terabytes a week. That's what they That's what they generated for... For Star Wars, which would be nothing now, but but back then it was a, a lot of drive space. Um, next question. Nikhil Kamkarov, uh, Kamkar of New Jersey. I'm very interested in the pre-viz part of the pipeline and anticipate that it'll change in a lot of ways with AI and other tools to help us get to a version that can get a positive lock on director approval. Thoughts on how pre-viz will change? I've had directors look at our previous and say, is the film shot going to look as good as this? And we're like, yeah, it's going to look better than this. <laughs> like it's, you know, it, it, you know, you can, you can do, and that was 15 years ago. I mean, it, it, it just depends on how much detail you're able to put into it. And that comes back to the storyboarding and the planning, because a lot of times we can build really great previs if we're not zigzagging. Zigzagging is just the, the death of many projects. Go ahead, Alan. You know, I had a thought on this about what's going to be happening with previs, uh, and and specifically what AI is going to be bringing to the table here. If you pull up Midjourney, and you know, enter any prompt, and you, let's say you're going to use Midjourney for as a as a previsualization tool, uh, if you actually had to try to 
create in the 3D realm things that Midjourney are creating, it's putting a tremendous task on these 3D artists. So at least in the short term, I'm looking at what's happening in this previs because you're going to have these art directors looking at what this AI is generating. Saying, this is amazing. Well, I want I want everything to look like this, and the 3D artist has to go in and figure out. Okay, now do I, how do I actually create this in the 3D world or the visual effects world? Not necessarily the the easiest thing. So one side effect of AI, and this is just my personal thought or observation, is that it's actually going to put more challenge to the 3D artist to be able to generate the kind of look and feel you're getting off of what AI is doing, you know? Yeah, so. 100%. Uh, next question. Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Could you use AI to estimate cost for changes in production? For example, a director wants different or more. It's really hard. I mean, the game of how you charge for things I think is even more complex than AI can handle. <laughs> uh, you know, the bottom line is you need to charge three times what you thought you should charge. And then then usually it turns out that that, that simple thing is, is usually enough to manage most things. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, the problem with AI is it hallucinates and you don't want something hallucinating when it comes to budgeting. And uh, so there are spreadsheet programs that are out there that are designed for budgeting that lets you plug in different, you know, different production days. Oh, we got to shoot nights instead of days, you know. And it will take that into account and recalculate your budget and tell you how much over budget you're going to be or how many more days you're going to have to add to the production schedule in order to complete it on time. So there are tools out there right now that are basically based on old school spreadsheets that do a lot of this stuff. AI, I'm not sure how much AI you'd need. Uh, you know, you could call it AI, but it's basic algorithms that are built into macros into those spreadsheets. Next question. Dave Troutman, Edmonton, Canada. I'm seeing a lot of iPad apps for storyboarding. Has this changed the way animation is being done or just for live action work? Uh, the iPad apps are great. I have to admit, the, the iPad app that I still use for this is Keynote. I just build a bunch of files and I'm sitting there drawing inside of Keynote and I can go through it and rearrange things and build those out. I've tried a lot of other apps and I just haven't found one that that was as fast to come up with ideas as as that. So um, I, I don't know how much it hasn't changed. And I do it for CG or live action. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, what entry-level training would you recommend for Blender? You know, I don't I don't really know about Blender. I, I think the issue with Blender is, is that it's, it's great. It's got a lot of t great tools and it's gotten better. It's just that no production, large production companies use it. I mean, they use it for little bits and pieces here and there, but they don't really, you know, it's usually still something that, and it may change, um, you know, Apple's giving them money and Epic's giving them money and they might get better. Um, but it, it's just not as, I mean, I think that people who use Blender really want to sell us on the idea that it's the future, but you just don't see it like, you know, the, you know, and so I would, you know, you can, there's definitely, there's tons of videos on YouTube about Blender. You're just not seeing the same investment. I think that uh, Maxon does a better job with Cineversity. If you're, if you're able to get into a, if you're able to get an educational version, by the way, my, my son is learning Cinema 40 right now and he, he is, it's $10 a year or something like that if you're, if you're at school, you know, so if you're in a school or you're able to take something that qualifies, um, you know, it's not expensive to get into, into Cinema 4D, um, Maya, Houdini. These are all things that get used a lot, you know, for those, those types of things. And they have their own educational programs. So I would, I would take a look at those before I, if I was really trying to do this for work, if you're going to do all stuff for yourself, Blender might work, but I, I just don't, 
think it gets oversold a lot. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I mean, if you specifically want to learn about Blender, LinkedIn Learning has a, a bunch of uh, courses on Blender, uh, essential training and animated, creating character animation, et cetera, in Blender. So you can look there. Uh, they're fairly cheap, and uh, you can get a variety of courses. So check out LinkedIn Learning for that specific Blender tutorials. Next question. Bobby Rafferty in Florida. What tools are you using in collaboration with your 3D pipeline? Uh, yeah, go ahead, Alan. What what specific tools in collaboration with my 3D pipeline? Well, basically you have uh, you have 3D and you have comp. Those are the main things. So um, I'm using Nuke. I'm using After Effects. Um, pretty much that's those are my tools. Like mostly, I'm using 3D software and compositing tools. So. Next question, Robert Sababody in Poland. Alan, can you talk about the criteria that you use when you say that something does not need to be 3D? Uh, that's actually a great question. So again, g getting to the point of what everybody, a uh, few people have brought up here, I think the 3D market in general, visual effects is kind of overly saturated. So there's the question of just in terms of how much consumer demand is there for visually, you know, 3D content or whatnot. I think the novelty of it is kind of kind of worn off a little bit. But from my from a production aspect and from a storytelling aspect, I just look at it and say, <clears throat> what is the most efficient route to get to the visuals you're looking for? All of my learning, all of my every every question I ask myself is production focused, meaning what are you actually producing? 3D is just another tool for actually producing that. So my personal question is, is it going to be advantageous to use this in 3D? Is there another way we can do it better? So it really is just meeting the technical and or creative demands of the shot. Is it necessary? And if it is necessary, what tools are going to get us there the most effective way? So, Next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, Blender 3.6 touts an improvement in packing UV islands. At first glance, they look like toys packed in a box. How are they used? I don't know. Not a lot of Blender users here, so I, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure about that one. I have a really good friend who uses Blender all the time. He's kind of a pro. Maybe I'll get him on here eventually. So. Yeah, that'd be good. That'd be good. Yeah. Uh, next question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado. Can you discuss volumetric 3D content? And I'm, I, I'm not entirely sure. I, uh, of, there's a lot of different ways to think about volumetric, so I'm not entirely sure what you're referring to. So I need a little bit more context. Maybe on another another time, we're going to be doing this once a month, ask that question again, or ask it again in a week. I'll try to figure out, but, but a little more context there of what you mean by that. Um, next question. Next question from Nikhil Kamakokar from New Jersey. There's a thought that no matter what creates all the assets for VFX, by AI and such, compositing will remain the key aspect that will need human point of view. Is compositing the most important component for the future to focus on? Nuke, for example. I don't know if it's the most important, but I, I will say that your entire shot comes together in your compositor. So, you know, now there are AI tools that are going to make that easier and easier and easier, things that are going to find edges. If you look at a lot of the stuff that's happening in Resolve and Fusion, uh, you're seeing a lot of development um, right now. I think that Nuke is still the 
the big one <laughs> that people use. Uh, After Effects is very popular. Fusion is coming up faster just because they have a lot more engineers. You know, so the when you look at the velocity of development, Fusion right now has got, got you know, is coming up faster than the other two. Uh, then After, After Effects is, tends to be a little bit more towards the visual, I mean, the motion graphics um, with some vis- some visual effects, and I did all the visual effects I did on After Effects. So it's definitely capable of that um, and still does a lot of those things. Uh, Nuke is like the kind of the heavy hitter um, in a lot of those areas. Uh, the, the tools are, are amazing. But again, I think that where we see the most number of features coming out that are, that are kind of uh, solving a lot of the problems that we need are Fusion. So I think it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how these all work. I do think that it still requires a lot of human touch, but the AI stuff is going to, you know, just help you do it. Not necessarily replace the artist, but let them do it faster. Um, next question. Next one in from Douglas Carmichael. I know Fusion 360 is a stalwart of the 3D printing community, even if those with limited 3D backgrounds. Would Blender be an heir to the throne in that market? I don't know. I, I, you know, I think that a lot of people are still using Fusion 360. And then I, I think Blender is a, a very capable thing to, to do prints with. Uh, and again, it's free. And so it, it, ha- it has a lot of tools that, that would be useful for that. So it, it definitely is possible to use it there. Go ahead, Courtney. If you're talking about 3D printing, you know, accuracy uh, of uh, dimension, dimensional accuracy is really important. And I'm not sure, I haven't used Blender that much, so I'm not sure how Fusion 360, you know, is very accurate from uh, design to printout. Uh, and I'm not sure how, if Blender maintains that level of accuracy, you know, thousandth right. of a millimeter accuracy when you're designing models. And so, All right. Thanks, Alan. I think uh, it's really good to have that. That that, that was a great walkthrough of the overview. Now, now what's going to happen is, is Alan's going to start working through each one of these. And so you can kind of take a little trip with us uh, through that process over the next year, year and a half, um, and which I'm really excited about. And so um, I, I think it's going to be a, a real let us kind of chew on that and understand it. And I know Tuesdays are still kind of new for us with the graphics and we're really excited to have Alan. We're going to have Nick on more often as well and then have some of our own discussions. And so um, so we've got a lot of a lot of stuff coming up. So stay tuned for that. Uh, thanks to the panelists. So we can't do this without you. And a great, great conversation this morning. Great questions in the morning. Uh, from our producers, we thank you uh, to, for asking those questions. The earlier you ask the questions, the better. It gives us time. I get up. One of the first things I do when I get up is I open up uh, I open up Makana and I read all the questions. And so those that's about you know, between five and five thirty is usually when I get back from the gym. And and so that's usually so it's not right when I get up, but but the uh, but I look at it at that time. I think some of us do. It depends on what the time zone is. And it gives me time to think about the questions and figure out which ones to do. So the earlier that you can get those questions in, the better. Um, so uh, so definitely uh, um, yeah, throw those questions in as early as you can. And really just think of one question a day or two questions a day that you can throw in there. Uh, and you'll, you will keep on. It's good for all of us <laughs> to have those questions. It may be personal to you, but it might solve a lot of other people's problems as well. Uh, we traveled 64,000 miles, 103,000 kilometers. That's 509 million bananas for scale. And again, um, thanks so much to the uh, incredible production team on the back end that makes this happen and make and allows us to do the Tlaloc traversal every day. The production team, the development teams, the management teams, all of those things. And another reminder that uh, we have our, our show workshop at noon today. Um, and so uh, 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 that's a, it's, gonna, it's kind of a place, if you're thinking about being on the panel, thinking about editing the show, think about any of the aspects of this reading being a reader uh we basically do a pseudo show at noon every uh noon pacific time uh 3 p.m eastern standard time 
and let you, you get a chance to play with all of those things. Uh, we've kind of gotten to a point where it's harder just to jump in. And so if, you, uh, if you're interested in that, go ahead and show up for the show workshop. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. Job, Alan. Thanks again. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, we've been whispering in three, 